0: if God so loved us we also ought to love one another no one has First loved us. If anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. This commandment we have from him: whoever loves God must also love his brother. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers, the flower fades the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, thank you that you have given us your goodness and your grace, that you have poured out your love upon us, and thank you that we are your children, not through any works that we have done, not through any merit that we have attained, but rather by grace, through faith, which itself is a gift from you. Be with us now and help our eyes to see the truth that you have on, uh, for us. Help, help us to hear your voice speaking to us as you speak to us in your word. Help our hearts to be quickened by the truth of your word. That we might love you and love others as you have called us to do. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this passage that we are looking at today is, is a wonderful passage, I hope you agree. It's, it's a passage that one commentator said was one of the most sublime passages in all of the New Testament. Right? The whole book of First John is largely about love. That's why I called this sermon series, First John, a, a love letter. But, but while the whole book is about love, nowhere does this come more to the fore. Nowhere is it more obviously evident to us than in this passage right here. Over the course of 15 verses, we see no fewer than 29 times the word love or beloved is mentioned. This idea of love dominates this passage like no other passage in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love passage, is even second to this passage as the most concentrated treatment of love. In fact, it's, it's so dense that there is a, uh, a more deep addressing of the topic of love in this passage than, than really in all four of the Gospels combined. It is so directly focused on. Quite simply, love is the heartbeat of this passage, bringing, bringing rhythm and life to John's message. But it's not just any love that that John is talking about here. He is talking about the the love that is better than all loves. The love that is, that love which is the best of loves. It's the epitome of love, perfect love, God's love. And in this passage, he urges us to, to love one another with the same love that he has shown to us and tells us that in so loving one another we first know God secondly God abides in us and then finally his love is perfected in us first of all in loving one another we know God beloved John writes let us love one another. This this phrase beloved, it's one that John uses repeatedly. It's that phrase or little children are the two that he seems to most commonly use to to address his audience. John calls them beloved because he loves them. It's quite simple. They, They are those whom he loves, but far more importantly and far more foundationally is the fact that not only does He loved them, but God loves them. And so, like Paul writes in Ephesians 5, he says, be imitators of God as beloved children. And that's what John is telling his audience here. He says, you are a beloved child of God. Therefore, you should be an imitator of him. Right, if you've ever considered pictures of yourself I look at pictures of myself now, and I look at pictures of my dad back when he was my age, and we look kind of the same, right? There's a similarity, and I notice some of my mannerisms and some of the different things that I do. In many ways, I'm kind of an imitation of my father, and that's what John says. That's what Paul says. That's what the whole of Scripture says, We are to be imitators of God, our Heavenly Father. We are to act like him, to look like him, to behave like him. When others look at us, they should, to a certain degree, see God. For love is from God, he writes, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. He's says that God is the source of all true love. Now we need to understand that we need to define our terms here because when people talk about love, they can mean a lot of different things, right? They can be talking about romantic love. They can be talking about the the love of friendship. They can be talking about familial love. There's all kinds of different ways that we could be addressing love. There are words that stand behind all these types of love, but, but the Greek word here is agape. It is It is more of a a self-sacrificial love, an all-pervading love. It is the love that's spoken of in 1 Corinthians 13, that love passage that we talked about before that we've looked at so many different times, right? It's a love that has far less to do with how we feel and far more to do with what we do. This is the kind of love that it's talking about that that comes from God, because He is the source of it. For love is from God. God is love. We read in verse eight: Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. It's not just saying here that that God is just love; that that's all He is. That that love is God, and God is love. No, it's saying that it, it's saying that that God is love, in that He is at his core, in every part of his being, love is there. There, there. of course, are other things that the scripture tells us about God, right? God is one. God is a spirit. God is light. God is holy. God is a righteous judge. God is a consuming fire. God is mighty. God is with us. God is our help. God is Faithful above and beyond. And in all of these things, though, God is love. All of him is love. He is love's consummate personification and its perfect manifestation. And in this, John writes in verse 9, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Christ Jesus, who who always was divine, who, who forever has been in perfect fellowship with the Father and the Spirit as the second person of the Trinity, existing eternally, resplendent in glory, became one of us, with us, for us and this is the perfect expression of love right and apart from this demonstration of his love it's impossible to know God that's what he's saying here is that that, the love is what God is and this expression of his nature that that is the incarnation demonstrates his love most sublimely, most perfectly, so that that if we are to ignore that part of his being, if we are to think that God is love, but I, I just can't get on board with this incarnation thing, we've missed the boat all together, right? We can't have the God of love, the God who is, unless we have the Jesus who is God and is man, That's what he's saying. They they are inextricably linked. They are bound together, right? And God has shown us his nature through the incarnation, through what he has done. That's that's the reality. We are what we do, right? We say sometimes we are what we eat, right? But but really, we are what we do. We, We like to parse those apart, don't we? We like to say, when we do something that we don't like, something that maybe isn't very flattering, something that, that we know to be wrong even. Like say, well, that wasn't like me. Yes, it was. It was like you. And it was like me. That, those, those things aren't things that just got applied to us from, from outside. Those are sins that come from, from inside, right? They come from our heart. That's where they, they, they are birthed. They are like us. But in God there is no sin. He is love. And holiness. And so he acts in accordance with who he is. That's what he has done in the incarnation. And so now that we have experienced the love of God. There is something that can happen to us that is different. Right? That's the idea here. Is that that as Jesus has come in the flesh as he has borne our sins on Calvary's cross as he has paid our penalty as he has given us new life when we were once dead there's a a change that takes place in us right Paul says it quite nicely in that we are a new creation the old has gone away and the new has come see the, the good news is that the gospel is not just for someday in the future It's not just promising when we die we get to go to heaven and won't that be nice and for the meantime, well, whatever. No, there's a change that takes place right now, immediately. We are a new creation. We are able to walk in holiness and walk in love and thus know God better. He says, and this is love not that we have loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins propitiation you'll remember back in chapter two we looked at it big fancy seminary word right but it's a good word it's a word we should know the idea being that 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 he is our appeasement he has he has pacified the wrath of God the holy righteous wrath of God against our sin, has been appeased, has been satisfied in Christ Jesus. He is our propitiation. And this is the gospel, right? We, we sometimes want to take the death of Jesus and have it mean something else, right? Isn't it just such a great example of love? Well, yes, it is, but it's more than that. Isn't it, isn't it just a wonderful parable? Of the, no, it's, it's not a parable. It is It is the actual payment for our sins. He accomplished something there. I love what James Denny says. If the propitiatory death of Jesus is eliminated from the love of God, it might be unfair to say that the love of God is robbed of all meaning, but it is certainly robbed of its apostolic meaning. It has no longer that meaning which goes deeper than sin, sorrow, and death which recreates life in the adoring joy, wonder, and purity of the epistle of John. Isn't that a wonderful promise that that in the death of Jesus on the cross, the love of God goes deeper than sin, deeper than sorrow, deeper than even death. That has impact on us today. It has impact on the way we live our lives because we see God. We get to know God better through this reality and that changes who we are. And it causes us to live lives to his glory. Quite simply as he puts it in verse 11, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Right, the, the, the if then statement here isn't... Uh, uh, well, I don't know if that happened, but rather he's, it's a, more of a since, right? Since God loved us in this way, we also ought to love one another. Jesus is our example. He is our, our motivation. He shows us how we are to love. And he, he pushes us in that direction through his love. He, he does these things. And as we follow him, we get to know God better have you ever given somebody a gift maybe a christmas or for their birthday or just because and and it was in giving them this gift your heart was filled with joy right It, it was better than any gift you've ever received right because it was an expression of your love for them and you knew they appreciated enjoyed it and it was just so wonderful right and and that's a sense when you when you express that kind of love toward another you come to realize the love of God at a deeper level right and that's why we have joy in that right furthermore we display God to a watching world right a watching world that otherwise will not have seen God, no one has ever seen God, he says in verse 12. He's talking about in his fullest manifestation, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. That was our second point, God abides in us, right? Because our God is not some far off distant God who is, who's never comes into contact with us, who is completely hidden and unknowable. He is a God who has stepped forth into history and revealed himself to us, but beyond that, actually becomes intertwined with us he indwells us through his spirit he unites himself to us verse 13 says by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit he he abides in us and we in him we're intertwined with him we we have become one Right? It's, it's like that picture of marriage that God uses in his word as a, as, a, as a picture of the relationship that he has with us as his people. Right, We, we become intertwined. We are joined together, and all that he has becomes ours. Right? I've used the example before, but, but, but when a, a man and a woman get married, if one of them has a million dollars and the other one has zero dollars right that is their identity before they get married and and they don't have the one who has zero has has nothing but but the moment they become married right the one who had zero is now a millionaire right because they are joined together and that's the picture all that Jesus has becomes ours as we are united with him Paul puts it this way in Colossians 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Jesus says in John 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he, is, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Well, how, how does this happen? Sounds like a good deal, right? What happens through faith in him, through trusting in him, not just any religious belief whatsoever not just believing that a God exists but rather trusting in Christ Jesus as the propitiation for your sin realizing that I can do nothing to make myself right before God but Jesus has done everything to make me right before God and so I trust in his payment I come to him by faith I rest in him alone Right? And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son into the world. Yes, check. I believe that. I trust in that. Therefore, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. That is what we must profess. Right? That Jesus is the Son of God, that he has been sent by God into the world. Why so? We have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Right? We need to know the love of God as seen in the incarnation, as seen in his propitiatory death, as seen in his gift of love to us. God is love and whoever loves, whoever abides in love abides in God and God in him. You see what he's saying here is that not that if we love one another then we enter into a relationship with God as a result. Rather what he's saying is is if we are abiding in love, if we are loving one another, that is evidence that we are already in that relationship with God. It's evidence that we, we are plugged into him, as it were. It's kind of like if, if I look at a, a light, right, and I pull the light switch, I turn it on, the light comes on. I don't believe that the light coming on caused the plug to get plugged into the wall, right? That'd be silly. Rather, I see the light come on and I say, well, it must be plugged in. That's what he's saying. If the light of love is evident in our lives, then we must be plugged into the power source, the source of all love, who is God. Of course, none of us loves God perfectly, but that's the goal. And united to God as we love one another, his love is made perfect in us. And we have that reality even now, right? The gospel doesn't say one day these things will be true of you, but they are true of you now. You are alive in Christ Jesus. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. You are a child of God. You are heirs of the kingdom. You are citizens of heaven. You are seated in the heavenlies. You are forgiven and you are holy right now. And so we can live out the love that he has for us as brian chapel says we who we are in relationship with god is not determined by what you do rather what we do is determined by who we are we are the beloved of god therefore we will love one another and god's love is made perfect in us by this verse 17 says his love perfected with us Harkens back to verse 12, right? When he said, "If we love one another, his love is perfected in us." What, what is meant by this idea of love being perfected in us? It's not that that we have morally perfect love, that there's no flaw in it whatsoever. Rather, it's it's love reaches reaches its its fullness, its intended end. It has it has matured to the point of of what it was supposed to become. As we exercise love, it becomes stronger in us. It it works to a more developed state as it comes to its appointed end. His love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in the world. This is the third time John's mentioned confidence in his letter He's not looking to shake our confidence. He's wanting to encourage it. He's wanting to bolster our confidence. And he's saying, as we exercise love, we can be sure that God is at work in us, right? That's what he says in verse 18. There's no fear in love, but perfect. Love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Do you get it? He's saying that that if you are loving others, That can only come because God has loved you. And and if God has loved you, then you need not fear punishment because he has shown us the love of Christ Jesus paying for our sins. And if our sins are paid for, we need never pay for them again. So we love. Why? Because he first loved us. Ian Hamilton puts it this way. He says, Love is a command we are to obey, but like all biblical commands, it is rooted in the soil of God's grace. Who God is and what he has done for us in his Son is what ultimately constrains obedience from the child of God. This is what distinguishes evangelical obedience from legal obedience. Right? Right? We, we come to know the love of God. We, we experience that love. We become sure of it in Christ Jesus. And we, in turn, live lives of love ourselves. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, John says, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. It seems almost the other way around, doesn't it, right? Like, it'd be easier to love God because, you know, he's perfect and all, and he kind of deserves our love. And and my brother, who I have seen, sometimes kind of gets on my nerves, right? So, So it doesn't seem like it'd be easier to love God, but see, that's to misunderstand love again, right? Because the idea is that love is not earned, It's not something that's given because it's deserved. When God loved us, it wasn't because we deserved it. It was in spite of who we are. And so the fact that sometimes our brothers, sometimes our sisters annoy us or act in ways that are unlovely do not relieve us of any responsibility to love them, but rather give us an even better opportunity to exercise love toward them. So let us be committed to that. Let us love regardless of how others are treating us because this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You see, we we say that God's love is made perfect, but it is a process, right? And we are all in that process and there's no finer way for us to grow in that process, to advance in that process, than by looking to the love of God shown to us most beautifully at the cross. So when we come to the table, we do so remembering and proclaiming the death of Jesus on our behalf, that great gift of love, and we proclaim it to the The world so that they might know its truth but we also proclaim it to ourselves and to to each other so that we might be reminded of that truth and and of that beauty and of that power that power to save us from our sins that power to make us right with God and that power to enable us to love one another as he has loved us so we come to the table We come to the table to commune with our Lord. We come to the table to commune with one another. We come to the table to proclaim Christ and him crucified and to have our faith strengthened by the grace of God. The Apostle Paul writes, For I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord... Paul goes on from there to warn us to not partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Rather, he urges us instead to discern the body of Christ. What does this mean? Well, it means that we are to remember that we are not just individuals. We are members of one body, of Christ's body and as such we must love one another even as he has loved us and we must realize that that even as we do exercise that love that that nor anything else makes us worthy if it's something that we do nothing that we do nothing that we bring makes us worthy rather It is just the realization of our sin and the blood of Christ Jesus shed for our sin on Calvary's cross. If you're not willing to place your trust in Jesus alone, then you should probably not partake. But if you do trust in Christ Jesus, then he invites you to come. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Before we do, though, we'd like to take a moment to confess together our common faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. You'll find it printed in your bulletin, this ancient statement of faith that throughout the centuries has joined Christians together. Let's proclaim its words together now. My brothers and sisters in Christ, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, a holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and a life everlasting. Amen. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, we thank you that you have shown us love. That you have shown us love first and foremost in the person of Christ Jesus, who set aside all glory, that he might be one with us, for us bearing our sin and purchasing our pardon. We thank you for the love that has granted us faith that we might trust in him and him alone. We thank you for the love that is so bountifully shown to us through your body as others come alongside us and encourage us and and build us up in the faith, and we pray that you would use us more and more to that end. Help us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, not because they deserve it or they have earned it, but because you have, and you do. Help us to love, help us to love, Help us to love. In Jesus' name, amen. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Would you pray with me once more? Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your supper. Thank you that you promised to be near to us, to be with us, and thank you that in partaking of this meal, we know your grace and your love all the more. Be with us now, and help us to live to your glory, for the sake of Christ Jesus our Lord, amen.